This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. It used to be my not particularly considered opinion that there'd never been a bad film about food or a good one about rock music. Since then, I've had to amend that position. There have been several terrible movies about food, and there have been one or two pretty good rock biopics, by which I mean dramatised rock movies. There are any number of great rock documentaries. There is no band that emphasises becoming greater than the sum of their parts than the band. Simply their name, the band. That was it. But biopics are a whole other thing. There's a reason why most rock stars are called inimitable. No matter how good a job actors do impersonating Freddie Mercury, Elton John, Johnny Cash or John Lennon, it's just that, an impersonation. For me, the imitation never has that unique thing that attracted people's attention in the first place. People don't pay to see Reg White. They pay to see Elton John. Sorry. Penny. And there's also the complication when the rock stars in question have a major say in the film. They certainly don't want to show themselves in a bad light, even when their excesses were common knowledge. No one will play us on the radio. We need to get experimental. Do it again. One more. How many more Galileos do you want? A case in point is the film Straight Outta Compton. Hip-hop group N.W.A. had, shall we say, a colourful career. Great records, but rather dodgy personal lives. So the solution was found. Blame it all on the dead guy. One member had passed on, and virtually every negative story was dumped on him. People are scared of you guys. You have a unique voice. The world needs to hear it. They want N.W.A.? Let's give them N.W.A. A rookie mistake of rock biopics is to try and tell the whole story. Every hit, every setback, every trip to rehab. Far better to just concentrate on the interesting bits, like Backbeat, the story of the Beatles before they were Beatles. It's only time three. Time for daddy. What do you want for nothing? Are you top ten yet? You haven't done nothing yet. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We're the band. If you happen to know, we keep our clothes on. And this week is tentpoled by another biopic of Australian 70s pop star Helen Reddy. What set her apart from the competition, Karen Carpenter, Kiki D, and Olivia Newton John, is she wrote I Am Woman, the song that captured the burgeoning second wave of feminism. What do you think of conservative political activist Phyllis Schlafly calling on women to fight against ERA and her claims it will disadvantage housewives and take away the privileges of womanhood? Oh, I disagree. I happen to believe it's high time the Bill of Rights be applied equally to women. But turning that into a movie proved a lot of work, particularly when the filmmakers seemed rather more sound on feminism than they were on show business. Also this week, a Danish family epic set in World War II, Into the Darkness, and a remake of a classic book and classic film, Rebecca. This was her favourite. I laid it out for her that night. Come on, hold it. Touch it. The reviews of Ben Wheatley's remake of the only Hitchcock movie to win an Oscar have been a little mixed, possibly unfairly. But first, is there more to Helen Reddy than I Am Woman? What are you doing? Want to lose your recording contract? This is more than just a song to me. 
Helen Reddy had a not particularly stellar career in Australia before she headed to the States with a young child in tow. Her dream was to crack the American market, which was certainly ambitious in the late 60s at the height of the British invasion by hairy male bands. Look, I still have my return ticket to Sydney, so I was thinking that, that maybe I go home a while, save up and then come back to New York. No. You and I both know you won't. Helen had one contact, fellow Australian Lillian Roxon, who was making a name for herself as a rock journalist. Lillian arranged a birthday party stroke fundraiser where she met a man called Jeff Wald. Oh, you must be the birthday girl. I got big plans. Well, so have I. Oh, yeah? Uh, I'm going to make a million dollars by the time I'm 30. Well, I'm going to make two million. But uh, good for you, keep modest. That's the setup for I Am Woman, a narrative that seems to think that rampant sexism was the only reason an unknown singer who didn't write her own material failed to crack the charts. But in fact, the smartest thing Helen did was hook up with Jeff. You're from Australia, right? What are you doing in New York? If you want to make it as a singer, America is where you need to be. I'm being paid less than the band. So they're men, they've got families to feed. Well, I've got a family to feed. Prior to that, all Helen Reddy had was a steely resolve to make it. And as it happened, this attitude coincided with a similar one among a lot of women of the so-called swinging 60s. Swinging if you happen to be a bloke. My mother tells me I have to choose between career and marriage. I tell her we can have both. <laughs> From now on, no one will tell us what we can and can't do. Helen found herself doing a lot of her own door-knocking because her new husband-manager, Jeff, was mostly concentrating on his own career. He had two unlikely clients, novelty act Tiny Tim and none more late 60s rock group Deep Purple. Miss Reddy, you sing. You sing very nicely. But male group's all the rage right now. You've heard of the Beatles, right? Did it ever occur to you men to, to ask women what they want to listen to? But the times were a-changing. Feminism was on the rise across the board and female pop audiences wanted something different too. Finally, Helen bullied Jeff into stepping up and getting her a record contract. Jeff hustled a one-single contract, a song from Jesus Christ Superstar of all things, and made sure, by hook or by crook, that it was a hit. OK, ladies and gents, here's what we're going to do. I've chosen a radio station, WDRC in Connecticut. We're all going to call and request Helen's song, and we're going to call over and over again until their phones explode. Tracy! Here! I have to say, American actor Evan Peters is more convincing as Jeff than Tilda Cobham Harvey is as Helen. She's about a foot too tall for a start. But singer Chelsea Cullen captures that voice uncannily well. Anyway, with a minor hit under her belt, Helen looks for a follow-up, one that reflects her new interest in gender politics. Helen, she's tapped into something here. Remember that march in New York and how many women showed up to that? Bunch of record sales marching down the street. The fact that women's rights are headline news in the early 70s inspires Helen to write a song herself and inspires Jeff to think he can sell it. I am woman, hear me roar In numbers too big to ignore It's kind of angry. It's man-hating. Jeff, you OK with this? 
I Am Woman is far from an overnight success. The record company hates it and buries it on an album. But it builds up momentum on the radio and eventually is released as a single where it goes straight to number one and picks up a Grammy. The winner is Helen Reddy. And I would like to thank God because she makes everything possible. Which, in fact, is possibly the story this film should have told, rather than a rose-coloured take on Helen Reddy's entire career. The song became bigger than anyone could predict, the semi-official anthem for the women's movement then and now. After that, there were more number one hits, mostly on the easy listening charts, with a sideline and appearances in a few so-so movies. Excuse me, Helen, I need your signature on this. Hey, I'll sign for that. Oh, that's all right. He signs everything for me. Lillian Roxon called for you again? Yes, I'll, I'll call her back. Uh, can you make sure the announcer knows to start the show with good evening, everyone? Not ladies and gentlemen, sure. Sadly, Helen Reddy died this year just a month after I Am Woman came out in the States. Now, if I sound a little lukewarm about the film, it may be because, while I appreciate the importance of the titular anthem, I was never a huge fan of Helen's stuff. Me and Alice Cooper, it turned out. What do you think of Alice Cooper dubbing you the Queen of Housewife Rock? I love it. Alice is just fabulous. Is it true you don't wear a bra on television? Would you ask a man if he wears underwear? And it's also because, like so many music biopics, Iron Woman is pretty unconvincing in the showbiz details. I'm sure what there is is mostly accurate, but I suspect it misses out quite a bit too. How does it feel to be Mr. Helen Reddy? Feels pretty good, actually. But to have a wife who's written the unofficial anthem of the women's movement and is the breadwinner in your home, isn't that emasculating? Well, Jeff and I are a team. In fact, bumptious manager Jeff Wald was probably Helen's secret weapon, as he was later for artists like Sylvester Stallone, Donna Summer, George Carlin and Roseanne Barr, whose hit TV show he produced. It turns out Helen Reddy lucked into the one feminist agent in Hollywood, though it's unlikely either of them realised it at the time. Yeah! Yeah! That's what I'm talking right about. On. Yeah. World War II is undoubtedly the most filmed conflict in history, and each time a new movie on the subject comes out, it's a reminder of how many different stories have been written about those six years. Well, this time the story is told from the point of view of Denmark. It's called Into the Darkness. Into the Darkness opens on a family gathering, the wedding anniversary of Carl and Ava. As they come out of their house to greet their guests and family, three sons, one daughter and Carl's son from a previous marriage, Michael, they're interrupted by low-flying planes dropping leaflets. War has broken out. And no sooner has it started than it's pretty much over. The little kingdom of Denmark is no match for the mighty Third Reich and surrenders almost immediately. The nations of Scandinavia, according to this movie, dealt with the German invaders in different ways. Tyskland is the world's strongest military. 
For instance, Sweden declared itself neutral, while Norway was ruled by a puppet government led by the notorious Quisling. Denmark attempted to steer a path between the two, not rocking the boat, but not actively assisting the German war effort. Like all good family at war epics, the contrasting attitudes within Denmark are personified by the various family members. Second oldest son Axel is a hothead, wanting to resist the invader but not knowing how. His half-brother Michael, already a soldier, is persuaded by his colleagues to admire, even support, the ultra-professional German army. Meanwhile, the two youngest brothers are more interested in jazz than politics, and sister Helene falls in love with a dashing U-boat captain to her mother's dismay. Mother Ava comes from old money and feels free to say what she likes about the invaders. But for her husband, Carl, it's not so simple. With the British market gone, he's forced to do business with the German government, and they want to modify his electronic goods for war work. The pressure on Denmark's conscience is what Into the Darkness is mostly about. And like similar stories from then-occupied countries, France, Czechoslovakia, the Netherlands, even Germany itself, the full scope of the Nazi regime dawns slowly. A Jewish couple, friends of Ava, arrive one night desperate for one of the family to ship them to neutral Sweden immediately. The family try to reassure them this is Denmark, not Germany. Everyone is equal here, Danes and Jews, until of course they're not. The stories of nations under occupation do have common elements. Some citizens collaborate with the occupiers, anxious to stay on side with the winners. Some go underground and risk life and limb in the resistance. And most keep their head down and survive, making an increasing number of compromises along the way. Into the Darkness is workmanlike rather than groundbreaking, but the best bits of the story are those that are most Danish. What was life like under occupation in that country? How do you maintain a safe distance from the occupier while still keeping your workers employed and your family fed? As always, Into the Darkness asks the one question that most of us, thank God, have never had to ask ourselves. What would I do in that situation? Would I have behaved as badly as the worst or as well as the best? It's not called the darkness for nothing.
The remake of Daphne du Maurier's famous novel Rebecca and subsequent movie by Alfred Hitchcock has been greeted unenthusiastically by a few critics, though I'm not sure why. It certainly looks great under the direction of Ben Wheatley and his cinematographer Laurie Rose. It opens in Monte Carlo, where a diffident young woman meets a wealthy aristocrat, and I apologise in advance for the cheesy trailer music. The terrace is for guests only. Monsieur, the young lady will be joining me. What have you do? I'm a lady's companion. Possibly one of the reservations about this, Rebecca, may be the casting of film star pretty Lily James as someone mousy and the generally dashing and decent army hammer as the angry buttoned-up widower Maxim de Winter. Maxim de Winter. His wife died last year in his entire need of company. Oh, Monsieur de Winter. What are you doing? Oh, you'll see. Or it may simply be that, like many classic stories from another age, it's collided with established morality and customs of today. Mousy young ladies' companions, I'm sure, do get swept off their feet by insensitive brutes today, just as long as they're not called little fools while it's happening. This week, I'd like to never forget it. Come to Monday. And another thing about Rebecca, as Alfred Hitchcock himself found, is that there's only one way to do it, and that's exactly how Daphne du Maurier wrote it. Once Maxim marries the second Mrs. de Winter, that means going to the family mansion, Mandalay, and meeting the housekeeper from hell, Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. de Winter, may I present Mrs. Danvers? Welcome to Mandalay. Mrs. Danvers has big shoes to fill, originally Judith Anderson in the 1940 Oscar winner and Diana Rigg in the 1997 TV miniseries. But Kristen Scott Thomas is more than capable of filling them, icy, sarcastic and obsessively attached to the memory of the first Mrs. De Winter, the impossibly beautiful Rebecca. Never seen a house like this. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you'd been a lady's maid. This is all very new to me. I'm sure we won't disappoint him, madam, if that's your concern. The story of Rebecca is a brilliant concoction. No wonder you can't fiddle with its structure. It opens as a fairy tale romance, Cinderella maybe, or even Beauty and the Beast. And then it darkens into old dark house mystery before turning into a sort of ghost story. Everyone is under the spell of the dangerous, never seen Rebecca. We did a lot of entertaining when the late Mrs. De Winter was alive. Me about her. I have no secrets from you. All marriages have their secrets. The timid second Mrs. De Winter is nervous enough anyway, but every step of the way she's reminded by Mrs. Danvers just how far short she falls compared with her predecessor. Rebecca was glamorous, everybody loved her, she was fearless, she was the only woman Maxim ever really loved. She was the love of his life. I wonder what she's thinking about you. Taking her husband, using her name. And nobody contradicts this narrative, least of all her husband. She has no one to turn to. And when she decides to finally take charge of Mandalay and throw a party like Rebecca used to, that goes terribly wrong too. 
Is this some kind of joke? Of course not. It, it's the painting. I thought... Go and change. What, what is it? What have Go I... and change now. And finally, the true nature of the story starts to unveil itself. On top of everything, it's possibly a murder mystery too. Rebecca certainly died in mysterious circumstances and there are people sniffing around to find out who done it. Has Max ever talked to you about the accident? I don't know what you're talking about. How am I supposed to know anything if you don't tell me? She's still here. Can you feel her? As I say, dealing with a story as rooted in its time as Rebecca is a gamble. The book was a sensation in 1938, and the subsequent film has retained its allure ever since. But can it gain a new audience in a new century? You'll be dressing for dinner, guests waiting downstairs. Harder, Max, harder! <laughs> and he'd roar with laughter. And he was always laughing back then. Ben Wheatley was an unusual choice of director. He usually prefers edgy, independent films like High Rise and Sightseers. Though not as unusual as screenwriter Jane Goldman, whose past films included Kick-Ass and Kingsman. He doesn't love you. I said I want the truth. You didn't know her. You know what he did. For me, it had been so long since I'd seen any version of Rebecca that I bought into it without question, even on Netflix, which is where it's showing here. I thought the cast, which includes some favourite performers like Keely Hawes and Sam Riley, was terrific. And Maurier's creepy tale maintains its power to keep you on your toes all the way through. You can't go on living in that big old house with a ghost! I don't believe in ghosts. Maybe a notch or two down from the Hitch version, but that's still well up on most of the competition right now. If you ever dreamed you went to Manderley again, check it out. And as the ghost of Rebecca recedes, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week.